Well, we're in our third week in this sermon series called Come to Jesus, and it is kind of uh, double entendre, double meaning here. It's a, hey, let's have a come to Jesus moment as a congregation talking about evangelism. It is time that we really be honest about uh, our calling from God to be evangelists, each and every one of us. It is not just a special gift that is given to pastors. It's not a special responsibility given to those people who have a calling, uh, a title at the front of their name called evangelist so-and-so. It is a responsibility. It is a, an honor for each and every one of us who are believers in Christ Jesus to share the gospel. So we're having a come-to-Jesus meeting right now. Let's be honest, it's, it's time to be honest about whether or not we are going to be faithful to the call to go and make disciples. But we're also having a, it's also called come to Jesus because we are looking at how Jesus himself is engaging with various people from different uh, cultural backgrounds and how he interacted with them with compassion but yet conviction. In our first sermon uh, a couple, three weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus had this confrontation with Nicodemus, who was a kind of this self-righteous Pharisee, and how he helped Nicodemus kind of tear down all the idols of his life and ultimately help him see that a, as righteous as he thought that he was, he still needed to be born again to come to life a couple of weeks ago we saw how the son of man came to seek and save the lost and how it was uh, Zacchaeus the wee little man who was gave up his pride climbed up in the tree and how Jesus called him and met him right where he was at and said hey come down I want to be with you this week, we are going to be looking at a woman who has a past that she desperately wants to forget. This is a woman that Jesus approaches, again, with compassion, but also conviction. And, th and this is a woman who would be considered an outsider, someone who is marginalized. Now, the question that before we get into this text of John chapter 4 the question that we've got to be really wrestling with is, what does it mean to be an outsider? What, what, does it, what does it mean to not only feel marginalized, but to actually be marginalized? There's one thing to feel it, like, man, I'm kind of out on the, the outer edge of a corner. But what does it mean to actually be marginalized? How, maybe you have felt at one point in your life that you have been an outsider. Maybe it's at a gathering. Maybe it was at some kind of social function where your spouse maybe had a more significant role and you were kind of like this outsider going, okay, help me out. I don't know how to function here. But that, th this is, we're talking about something more. Maybe you, you've been a person who, maybe you've never really felt felt that way maybe you've always felt like you've been on the inside circle you've always had it you've always been in you've always felt accepted if i say that all people are worthy of dignity honor 
and respect, I am willing to bet that everybody in this room would nod with agreement, right? Everybody is worthy of dignity. Everybody is worthy of honor and respect. We, we will probably intellectually kind of assent to that truth. One, because it's, it's politically correct. Everybody, every man, woman, and child is, is worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. We try to create rules around that to say, yes, we want to ensure through our, our governmental system, through the way that we live as a society, that every man, woman, and child is given dignity, honor, and respect. We may even believe, of course I believe that. It's, it's kind of inherent. So the questions we have to struggle through as, as we share the gospel are, where does that dignity ultimately come from? What happens when that dignity has been stripped away by our culture or our own actions? What are the barriers that, that, that are put up that even separate us from one another? And maybe you think that these are, aren't, aren't an issue for you, and, or maybe you feel to, might feel as we talk about dignity, honor, and respect, and about barriers, maybe you feel maybe a little bristly because you are just tired of hearing the lectures from our culture for the sins that maybe you haven't, you don't think that you have committed. Not me. I'm a good, upstanding citizen. I don't create any barriers. Maybe it's uncomfortable because you know that there are things like racism. There are things like sexism. There are th- sectarian, even kind of religious things that exist out there. But you, maybe, you don't know how to address them. And Maybe you even wish that they do not even show up. The world that we live in tells us to, and you see it in the bumper stickers, to coexist, right? Co, just coexist. And it, it holds up at the same time, even though we've got these problems of sexism, we've got these issues of racism, we've got these, all these things going on, it says to coexist, but at the same time, the world says, these are the very things that cause inequality. There's a problem here. So injustice and inequality still remain, even though we are called to coexist, they remained in subtle and in significant ways. To ignore the fact that these lines exist or to simply say to get over it is to perpetuate the idea that these lines that are here do not have an impact on people and how they find their dignity, worth, and respect or even, my friends, in how they receive the gospel. What lines do you draw where you explicitly or implicitly say you're worthy of God's grace, but in actuality, you don't treat them as if they do? And that, my friend, 
is what we are going to be wrestling with this morning. We're going to see the mission of Jesus bringing and restoring dignity to people and groups that have experienced the erosion of dignity because of the sin of cultural and the sins of the culture and uh, the corporate world out in their time, as well as the individuals. Gender, race, morality, religion are all lines that have been navigated with the hope of dignity. And that's what we're going to see in John chapter 4. How Jesus navigates the issues of gender and race, morality, and religion. So let's get ready for John chapter 4. Would you stand? We are not going to read the whole thing because I am going to read sections of it as we get going. So I'm going to be reading uh, John chapter 4. And we are going to be looking, reading verses 39 to 42. Hear these words. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word, Lord. Excellent. Have a seat. So what we're seeing here is Jesus is going to be on a journey. And if we look at the, the first 15 verses of John chapter 4, we're going to see what, what looks like a little bit of a travelogue. And we might look at it as a travelogue and not understand what is really going on. The reality is it's important for you to not only understand the context, but it's also important for you to understand the actual geography of the land. John chapter 4 says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So when he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Joseph's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is, is, is traveling. He is going from one region to another region. He is tired of his travels. He's hungry. He's thirsty. We all get it. After a while, if you don't eat, you, you start getting hangry, and it's not a pretty thing. Jesus probably experienced some of the same kind of things. He was tired. He was thirsty. He was hungry. And he had, it said that he had to pass this way because it was the shortest way. But the reality is, it was not uncommon to take 
a slightly longer way to go around Samaria to avoid going through Samaria. In fact, there are three common trade routes in that region. One was the direct route from one region to another. The shortest distance between two spots is a direct line. But good Jewish people knew and had created two other trade routes. They created these routes because they did not want to go through Samaria. The reality is that Jesus had to pass this way not because of geography or because that was the only route. Jesus had to pass this way because of his mission, his theology. This was, was essential to Jesus' mission to bring those who had been treated as outsiders the good news. He, he, his part of his mission was to restore the dignity w- that was theirs when they believed the gospel and showing them that they do have great dignity before God. So we all, every one of us, will all go out of our way to maintain distance from people who have differences, people that we find it difficult to engage with, right? Every one of you. You see somebody in the hallway here, and you go, oh. You see them in the mall, and it's like, okay, I'm going to go and look at this rack. And I'm going to avoid them. I don't want to have a conversation with them. Every one of us has that. That person that we have differences with, whether it be a relational difference or a theological or a political difference. Every one of us has ways to create, like the Jewish people, create other routes to avoid face-to-face confrontations. But Jesus took a direct route. He, He didn't skirt it. Jesus is sitting alone at a well, and a woman shows up to draw water. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will come, will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. The, Jesus is, is 
meeting this woman here. And one of the first barriers that Jesus is encountering is this issue of race. 8th century B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrian army and many Jews were were exiled. And the Assyrians brought in a, a people from a bunch of other nations to intermarry with the remaining Jews who were in that region. Their purpose was to create a mixed race. And that mixed race was later known as Samaritans. They were a mixed breed. No longer the pure Jewish blood. A couple hundred years after Babylon took over Judah and exiled everyone, the Persians allowed many to return and to rebuild the temple. And the Samaritans asked, could we help? After all, they have part of the blood of Father Abraham, right? They, they want to help participate in the rebuilding of the temple. But they were rejected as ethnically and religiously impure. So in 400 B.C., the Samaritans built their own temple. Not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim. Just 250 years later, a Jewish king destroyed the temple. And when Jesus was a was a kid, Samaritans did something unthinkable. The Samaritans defiled the Jerusalem temple by scattering dead men's bones on the temple floor. There was bad blood between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. These genera- there were generations of pain, of prejudice, of pride, all working to keep these people separate. There was hurt. There was pain. There's mistrust. By any Jewish or religious standards, a Samaritan was an outsider. And John said, Jews don't deal with Samaritans. And this was, if you will, a full-on Jim Crow, South segregation kind of issue to engage with a Samaritan woman who was considered unclean. This is a woman that you would not drink from the same jar of water. Unclean. Her dignity had been robbed. Have you ever felt or contributed to the erosion of dignity in relation to race? Or maybe heritage? Many of us will say, no way. I've never done that. And that's where I'm going to call the BS card. We all have. In one way or another. And Jesus is coming to restore the dignity of how he has created us. In a beautiful mosaic. But it was not just a race issue. There was also the issue of gender. In this culture, it was not common for women and men who don't know each other to not speak to each other in public. So if you're passing by each other in in the, the city square, in the street, or down the road, you would not acknowledge or say hello 
How are you? You look great today. Hi. You would not do those kind of things. For rabbis, there were even writings at that time that said, one does not speak to a woman on a street, not even his own wife, and certainly not one who is not his wife. And this was for the purpose of reducing gossip. For Jesus to initiate this conversation was itself a a very controversial action. Jesus was engaging with a Samaritan. Plus, on top of that, Jesus was engaging with a woman. And later on, the the, the disciples, when they come back to town, to Jesus at this well, they are totally confused that this is happening. What is he doing? Jesus is breaking all the cultural norms at this time. So in every part of civic, religious, and family life, women were seen seen as less than fully valuable compared to men. And it was a perversion of God's original intent that only understood the inherent dignity of women. It, It perverted God's view, God's design. Men and women are absolutely distinct, and the world struggles with that, that we are very different, but we are absolutely equal in value and dignity. Every man has the exact same value and worth as every woman, and every woman has the exact same value and dignity and worth as any man. Equal, but yet distinct. And this woman... She knows, she knows in her heart of hearts that she is considered an outsider and she has known her entire life that members of one dominant race think that I am somehow less than a half-breed who is both racially and religiously inferior. She knows it. She feels it. She has lived it. She knows that Jesus is out of his lane and she is not having anything to do with it. She is calling him out. She goes, hey, guy, how are you acting? How you are acting is not appropriate, giving the norms of racial, religious and gender biases. What are you doing here? Why are you talking to me? Not not just because she's worried about the violation of these cultural uh, norms, but because this can't be genuine. This can't be real. The, The level of mistrust is so high, so something even as innocent as Jesus meeting her at a well and having a a noonday conversation at high sun, asking for a little bit of water, this is seen as incendiary. Additionally, this woman is a bit of a pariah in her village. She's an outsider in the culture of outsiders. She came in the middle of the day alone in the heat of the day when the custom for women to gather water was in the early morning when it's nice and cool or in the evening when it's nice and cool. It was a social social time for those who gathered water and she was isolated from that social time she comes alone and is reminded each and every time that she gathers water water of these big barriers that keeps 
her from experiencing dignity. She brushes Jesus off a bit, but Jesus redirects from his, uh, he redirects her question, and what she can offer him is a beautiful, what she offers him, she thinks is necessary, and he goes, oh no, I've got something greater for you. It's significantly greater. Jesus isn't the one in the greatest need here. She is. She thinks that she has something that this man, this dominant race, this religiously superior, gender better kind of person, she's got something that he needs. And the reality is, he has something that she needs. The reality is, I don't think that we often realize how thirsty we are. Jesus may be thirsty from a long, hard journey these past couple days. He may be starving, he may be hangry, but she's thirsty after a long, hard life. Jesus says, listen, there's a gift from God that cannot uh, that can quench the deep thirst of your life. Like mis, uh, the misunderstanding of Nicodemus of, of new birth. She is still thinking about the literal water rather than the, the deep thirst and the longing in her, in your or uh, my soul, for something that will truly satisfy. So she, she falls back to the pride of her own culture. Did you see that? She goes, listen, do I have to give you a history lesson about Father Jacob, the great patriarch, our our great father Jacob, he dug this very well and he drank from it and his whole family drank from it. I've at least got something. I, 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 I even brought a jug to this water. I have what I need. I have this well that our family, our tribe, our race has provided, and it's good enough, and it's better than what you are offering, which really is nothing. You ain't got a thing. Yet every day, she's thirsty, and she's going back to the same well by herself, alone, never having her thirst fully eradicated. And Jesus knows this and tells her there is a significant, significant difference from the well she's drawing from and the spring that he's offering. You see, these wells in that area, you have to dig down deep, maybe up to 100 feet, hoping to get some water to quench your thirst hundred feet with their tools which these wells also required regular maintenance daily effort to even come back to the well and to lower your bucket down bring it all the way up and pull up just one bucket one jar of water and feeling your hands each and every time as you're pulling up on this rope feeling your hands get calloused And as you're drinking with every sip of relief, you're also reminded that the thirst is going to come back and the only way to extract more water is with more effort. It is going to keep on working. It is a cycle. 
of thirst, of thirst. I need more. And this is the well of religion that makes us feel a little bit better in the moment. We drink a little bit. We feel a little bit better while we're, while we're disciplined. But in the end, it ultimately leaves us exhausted. Just more work. If I just do a little bit more and drink a little bit more each time, keep going back to the well, keep going back to the well, keep going to church, keep doing this. After a while, you just find yourself exhausted because you're just doing some work. But Jesus says, I've got a better offer for you. I've got a spring. I don't have a well. Jesus says, I've got this thing called living water. And and it is which flows as a spring. It just flows with water without any kind of effort that you have to do. It just naturally flows. And it is available for those who are desperately in need. Physical thirst will always come back. But spiritual thirst, the, the disconnection from God and the, the less than full dignity that is ultimately quenched by the way Jesus brings life. His water. He brings us and gives us life eternal. This water will well up. It will literally jump out of the depths of our heart. And, and we will have from within us the, these wells of the Holy Spirit springing up. But don't hear me. It's not that you are never going to experience difficulties or troubles or spiritual dissatisfaction or that you're going to be always perfectly content all the time. But it does mean that in those times you have access that is to these wells that satisfy the longing that we have for a relationship with our God the Father, with Jesus Christ the Son, and for the Holy Spirit. It's a water that sustains us as we move into life with God that is eternal, now and forever. Who would ever want to go daily to a well when you can have a spring within you? What are you going to? What, what are you going to daily do daily with a great effort hoping to that it will satisfy? What do you do on a daily basis just hoping, man, maybe that will satisfy. But in the end, it just ultimately, it leaves you with the same thirsty state. She wants this water. So her thirst will end and great effort is no longer needed. And Jesus is offering it. But he is going to do some deep, deep heart work before he gives it to this thirsty soul. The reality is often dignity can be taken away. But dignity is sometimes given away. And so let's look at 16 verses 16 through 26. It says this now. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. <laughs> Many of us know this story, right? It's just, it's like this shift, a change in the story. Uh, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no, no husband. For you have 
had five husbands. And the one you are with right now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Can you see the look on her face in this moment? Right? And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where, where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So there are these cultural and kind of corporate barriers like racism, sexism, tribalism that all rob us of dignity. And there are also individual sins, false worship, relational brokenness that just leave us thirsty. And Jesus gives us living water. And he is comprehensive about how he addresses the deep nature of, of our thirst. You can see it with morality. You can see it with sexuality. You can see it with relational brokenness. They've, they've been talking up to this point of just in just these general terms, and now he goes in, if you will, for the kill, right? It's been really a nice little conversation, and now it gets personal. Can I meet your husband? Simple question, right? Oh, I, I'm not married. You're right, you're not. But you have been five times. There isn't a standard out there that says, yeah, I've been married a lot of times. There there could have been death. There could have been divorce. There could have been uh, either way. There's a separation. There's insecurity. There's grief. And there's a deep desire for intimacy. And she has been trying to quench her thirst with relationships and her sexuality. She has a deep thirst, and for her, the only way to kind of meet that that thirst, to quench that thirst, is through sexual intimacy. And yet, they have both failed her multiple times, and now the relationship she is in, she she isn't even pretending it's to be a marriage. It's just a boyfriend. It's a hookup. It's friends with benefits. Why try to? For something lasting again is what's going on in her mind. Let's just focus on right now in, in this well of brief emotion and brief comfort and pleasure that comes from sex. Let's, let's just enjoy it right now. And that was her temporary well. And this is the other side of religion. It is irreligion or it is license. And I, I know I am so thirsty that, 
so, so when I'm parched, I'm just going to look for some kind of temporary pleasure, something to just kind of fill this void temporarily. And if it makes me feel good for a moment, an hour, a day, a season, I'm going to keep chasing after it, even if every time more and more of my value and dignity and worth is eroded and it's gone. So here she is, thirsty, thirsty for relationship, thirsty for intimacy, security, acceptance. And where does she find herself? Alone, isolated, and thirsty. Jesus has has offered living water and let her know that her thirst for dignity is greater than she might even realize. You, you might find yourself concerned that Jesus is being maybe a little too confrontational in this moment. It's like, oh, Jesus, turn down the, not, the, the dial because this really feels intense in this moment. Some of us, when, whenever we feel those tens- tense moments, we kind of want to, fade into the background and just kind of avoid controversy. You know how it is. Some of us kind of want to perch up and just be like a fly on the wall and kind of watch it, but not get involved in any kind of way. The, the reality is that Jesus is bringing up something very sensitive and something very shameful, and, but we have to remember this. Jesus knows all about her. He knows every nook and cranny. He knows her more than she is willing or ready to admit. And he has chosen to pursue her. Jesus has chosen to pursue her for the purpose of restoring her dignity. And he knows and he pursues her. But did you notice how she responded? Verses 19 through through 26, she kind of does this... uh, Oh, uh, let's talk about religion. Did you see that quick shift? Oh, I noticed that you're a prophet. How can we get off real quick like? Get on down this, get off, get off the talking about my, my sexuality, my intimacy, my multiple uh, husbands, and now my, my boyfriend that I'm just sleeping with to just kind of fill all this will. Let's talk about religion. What did she do when Jesus opened it up? She pulled a, hey, let's change the subject from my checkered past and my complicated present, and let's talk about something else. Let's talk about religion. She says, let's talk about the doctrinal differences of the Samaritans and the Jews. And I'm not 100% sure if she was trying to totally really change the subject after Jesus started probing her personal life or whether she recognized something in this man. Huh. Whatever the case, she brought up religion. So practically and theologically, Karl Barth says this, Christian worship is the most momentous, most urgent, most glorious action that can take place place in the human life so she is tapping into something that is really big every one of us is trying to find meaning and purpose and so she's tapping into something it is the highest function in which our souls can be involved 
And in our text, John reveals that our Lord views this matter of worship as one of utmost importance. And that is why he immediately answers the woman's questions. He doesn't go, no, 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 no. Let's not talk about religion. Let's talk about your boyfriend. He doesn't go back there. He recognizes that worship is utmost. And he keeps going at it. He really wants to get to the heart of the issue, the heart of the matter. In other words, the question of place of worship is ultimately irrelevant to Jesus. He goes, listen, that doesn't really matter. But the real question, and that is the question that Jesus answered was, what does God require in worship? So we can discuss the differences between doctrine and and religion, but know that neither of them, neither doctrine or religion, is ultimately going to lead you to true life in God. Jesus says, you have worshipped falsely because you do not even know God. Listen, grace does not sacrifice truth. Grace comes from Jesus giving us the truth. This woman had been under a system of worship based on the ignorance of the truth of God. And Jesus is not a cool, one of those uh, religious pluralists that says, oh, cool, you got a temple here? Hey, whatever works for you. He doesn't do one of those things. Instead, he says, here are some things that are true about God. God is a seeker of those thirsty for dignity who thirst for life. Thirst is an equal opportunity experience for every man, woman, and child. And because of sin, there is a stripping of dignity because we have been made for worship and we've been made for communion with God and it has been taken away because of our individual and our corporate sin. And God is a loving Father who will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. He is the one who brings the spirit. So it is not about where, which mountain you worship on. It's not about what you bring, what sacrifice you bring, what you bring to the table, or how you worship. It is all about who you worship. The God of the Bible, the the Father will be worshipped by spirit and truth. And God is seeking and finding authentic worshipers who will direct their worship Not to a place, but ultimately, they will direct their worship to a person. Did you notice that little statement in there? That salvation is coming from the who? Salvation, for salvation is from the Jews. Oh, we're back to this race issue again. But the reality is, salvation is from the Jews from a specific line, a specific family, and specifically, Jesus. Salvation is for everyone. And she says, God, the Savior Savior will ultimately sort it out. And Jesus says, well, let's make it clear right now. And what happens? There's a point where she... She has this realization. The disciples come back in verse 27. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with this woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? 
So this woman left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see this man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So they went out of town and were coming to him. Here's this point of clarity and dignity with walls coming down is now interrupted by the disciples. Jesus and this woman were having this marvelous interaction and she's having this aha this is this is probably the Christ and I'm going to go and tell people about it and but they've been interrupted by the disciples there's there's this reminder that there is still work to be done by the disciples of Jesus in understanding that God brings dignity to people. The disciples see these lines being crossed. Dignity is being given, and they aren't relieved. It's uncomfortable. They're confused, and they're silent. They don't welcome her. They silently question Jesus. Because nobody said it, but they said it. But the woman, she experienced and had this encounter with Jesus, and she cannot be silent. She cannot be silent. She had her dignity restored because she was being fully known. She was fully known, and she was accepted by Jesus. She had experienced the dignity of being treated with great value and care, and this restoration of dignity moves her from isolation to evangelism, from shame to transparency. She left her object that gave her thirst, and she ran into town in the heat of the day, and she had some good news. Tim Keller said this in his book on marriage, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything it liberates us from the, the pretense, from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. For the rest of this, now Jesus is reframing, church, what is your mission? It, he, you look at this and while the, they were arguing, uh, they were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat, but they said to him, uh, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him food to eat? We just saw the woman leave. Did somebody bring him food to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is the task. Then that is what fuels me, what feeds me. It satisfies God to accomplish the restoration of full dignity through faith in Jesus alone to those who are desperately thirsty for it. And if you are a disciple for Jesus, of Jesus, then your mission is to bring the living, lasting water of life with God across the lines to the world for people who are starving for it, thirsting for it. We have been called to this joyful mission of seeing people experience the greatest dignity bestowed to them from Jesus because of the greatest 
indignity suffered by Jesus on the cross in their place. And Jesus is inviting us. No, he's not inviting us. He's directing us. He's directing us as laborers who have already been paid with the the wage of eternal life to go out into the harvest, which is ripe to receive living water of life with God in, in Jesus Christ. God is using restored people like you and me to go and tell how he restores dignity that has been lost. We, my friends, we have, we have a mission. We have a message that is compelling because there are more people thirsty for dignity than we can even imagine. The amazing thing is when someone has found water like this woman and has been given dignity of being a part of the family of God, they cannot help but to want other people to know as well. So my question is for you. This has come to Jesus' time. Who is it in your life, in your circle, Seriously, that needs to have dignity, their dignity restored. And only God can do it through the gospel. Who have you spoken to this week about the gospel? Not because it's your job, but because it's your pleasure. It's easy to get focused in on our job. It's easy to get focused in on our families. It's easy to get focused on, on our little world, but we are kingdom citizens with a mission. If this church does not grow, it's not because God is ineffective. If this church does not grow, it's because we have not taken the responsibility and privilege of taking the gospel, sharing the gospel with people who are dying of thirst and offering them the spring of life that wells up within. My friends, the command to go and make disciples was not just for a bunch of guys up on a mountaintop in 33 A.D. The command to go and make disciples is imperative for all of us. From the youngest, from the bus driver, right, Breck? To the oldest among us. Every one of us. God has placed us in a place. Will we take the direct route to that person? Or will we keep on skirting and avoiding? Or will we go directly to them and watch God at work in restoring their lives? My friends, that's my prayer. And may it be so.
And all God's people said, just so you know, the word amen means, I agree, let it be. Let's pray.